Welcome to the Business Resilience Podcast, a series about how businesses respond to disruption and adversity. I'm your host, David Sutton, Advisory Partner at GHJ. Hello, thank you for joining our Business Resilience Podcast. I am Austin Hobson, Audit Supervising Senior at GHJ. Today, I'll be interviewing Adam Berkland out of Robinson Bradshaw, partner there. Our topic for today's Business Resilience Podcast is how to best position your company for institutional capital. Thank you for joining, Adam. Yeah, thanks. Glad to be here, Austin. All right, so diving right in. Considering what's going on with the current economy, you know, everybody's got this looming recession, there's talks of inflation, supply chain issues, the rising interest rates. What impact do you see this having on early stage companies? Yeah, that's a great question, Austin. You know, I'm I'm a lawyer at a, a full service corporate law firm here in the Carolinas, and uh, one of our focuses is working with startup tech companies. The businesses that I know best, and the industry I know best, is going to be those business to business software companies. Using those as a guide, I, I think a lot of startups, in particular, right now, are in cash conservation mode. You know, their customers, other large businesses, are facing inflation, rising interest rates, rising costs of supplies and labor, and that impacts their spending on sort of non-essential services. Each of those large businesses are assessing and evaluating each and every one of their software subscriptions, trying to figure out if there's things, you know, areas where they can tighten their belts and and cut certain things to reduce expenses. And if you're a non-essential software or you're perceived to be non-essential, it's possible that those Revenues are going to get cut or reduced or, you know, new business may not be realized. So there has been quite a bit of an impact on those business to business software companies, and they're seeing it in their own bottom lines as well. Another factor that I think those types of companies and really all tech startup companies are facing are, you know, competition for top talent. Compensation is up. You've got to pay more for the same kind of software engineer than you used to. It's harder to find people to hire. You know, a company here based in the Raleigh-Durham area of North Carolina that used to be able to just kind of grab people from their own backyard, they're now competing with firms from New York and Silicon Valley, Seattle, Austin, all over the country because people can work remotely now. And so they're competing uh, with those businesses as well. We have seen several of our clients, you know, struggling to hire and fill roles that they need in order to grow. Um, all of that makes it, you know, difficult times, I think, for software companies in particular. And I imagine, you know, startup companies on the whole as well. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. You know, I think it really is important to highlight, you know, conserving cash in these times just to be prepared for the unexpected as much as possible. And I really like you pointing out top talent being an issue because I think that's just something that's seen across industries right now and even more so for these tech companies because, you know, the developers are not the easiest to come by. And I mean, now with the salaries being up, it's going to be even more expensive to get those developers. Um, So considering those factors, you know, do you still recommend these early stage companies to still actively pursue capital raises or, you know, is it best just to focus on this cash conservation mode or is there kind of a balance between the two? Sure. That's a, that's a good question as well. Uh, a lot of clients are asking us those questions. And, you know, as legal advisors, we, we, we try best, you know, sometimes we are called upon to provide business advice to and we do our best to, to share our perspectives on, on various topics. 
really, Austin, the best time to raise capital is whenever you need it, right? Uh, startup businesses run on a business model where they try to grow as rapidly as they can so long as their cash reserves remain intact. And eventually those cash reserves run out and eventually they need to go back to the markets and go back to investors to seek more capital in order to continue to grow their business and fund their expenses and operations. A lot of it is not within a founder's control. If you're trying to grow, you're always going to have a need for more capital. If, if you haven't, you know, within the last six to 12 months, you know, just recently shored up your coffers, our founders are finding that they, they still have a need for capital. As far as, you know, the, the timing versus, you know, the status of the market, the way I view it is it, it's in some ways similar to buying a house. Let's say you've just moved here to the Research Triangle area from, from New York City because you took a new job here. You're moving your family down. You're looking at the housing market and saying, ah, you know, the housing market is not great. You know, interest rates are high. Housing supply is limited. The Raleigh-Durham area is growing rapidly. Uh, I'm having trouble finding a house. Well, that doesn't mean you don't still need the house. It just means that you're going to have to pay more. You're going to have to agree to worse terms. I think that's a really good analogy for our, our, what our founders are seeing in the capital markets right now. They have a need for the capital and they have to take the deals that they can get, which may not be on as favorable valuations, on as favorable terms as they did in the sort of high-flying years of 2020 and 2021. As we get this question from clients, something that we try to point out is, you know, the, the years in 2020, 2021 were probably inflated. Um, I think some people say, oh, we wish we could get back there. Well, it was probably too high. We were flying a little too high. And so in the last couple of years, what we've seen, part of it is a downturn, but it, I would characterize it better as sort of a return to reality, coming back down to earth. You know, the good news is that from our view, from the deal flow that we're seeing at our firm, it seems like we have at the very least hit bottom. We're starting to see our founders get some more traction. Valuations have certainly not gone back to that kind of 2020, 2021 high level. But you know the terms that surround the economics of the transaction are not so aggressive, not so egregious as they were in the really down, down times of last year. Uh, so I, I think somebody looking to raise more capital right now, it could be a period where things are starting to turn around. We're seeing glimpses of better terms on term sheets these days. So maybe not quite so dire of times as it was maybe a year ago this time. Yeah, thanks for sharing that perspective. I really like the analogy of it being akin to buying a house and kind of being a return back to reality um, from those really highs we've seen in the last couple of years to kind of getting back to more normal levels as we kind of move forward. Building off of that, I'm thinking of those factors that you just discussed, you know, what key factors or what few things would you recommend our early stage company to focus on that's preparing for a capital raise right now? Yeah. From a legal perspective, I, I think the basic blocking and tackling um, is just getting your legal house in order. Uh, make sure you're working with your legal counsel to ensure that you know your capitalization table is in order. And that means that the paperwork for any stock issuances is in good order. If you've got a stock incentive plan to grant stock options uh, to employees and other key service providers, uh, again, make sure that that plan is in good order. The stock option grant agreements are in good order. Everything is subject to vesting. Investors want to see that employees and other service providers have skin in the game and will have skin in the game to keep growing the business best that they can. 
So the corporate paperwork around having your cap table in order, I think, is key. Another kind of legal housekeeping matter is ensuring you have proper paperwork with employees and service providers around intellectual property assignment and confidentiality. Investors are really not going to like it if, if there's some lack of clarity around who owns the relevant intellectual property in your technology business. They want to see that contractors and employees have all committed to keeping the company's confidential information in confidence. And that goes down all the way to you know even the employees and contractors that you may not expect to handle sensitive information or that you may not expect to be developing IP. It's, it's just sort of good housekeeping that investors are expecting. That's some basic legal housekeeping. I, I think that you know, the legal piece is, you know, much as I'm a lawyer and I advocate for good, clean corporate documentation, having everything in order, it, in a lot of ways is secondary to the broader pitch that you're giving to investors, right? I think what they want to see is, you know, they want to see a clearly articulated business vision where you've proved and demonstrated to them that you can take your idea and put it into operation in a way that reduces business risk, technical risk, and execution risk right? You want to be able to demonstrate that there's a market for your product. You want to be able to show that while this is a very complicated problem you're trying to solve, you you can articulate the vision for how you are best positioned and uniquely well positioned to resolve it. You want to be able to demonstrate that you're the right team to tackle that problem. You're really trying to sell investors on a vision, right? What it is that you bring to the table that's unique. And I think the last piece of advice I'd mentioned too is doing a little market analysis and focusing in particular on competitive analysis. Who are your competitors? A company that responds to that question from investors and says, well, we don't have any competitors. I think more than anything, that's a big turnoff to investors because it just demonstrates that you really haven't done your homework. So, you know, you may not know that you have competitors, but, you know, they're out there and you need to find them. You need to figure out how you are distinct from them, what makes you unique. What makes you best positioned? Circling back to the question about availability of capital, there are dollars out there. Funds have capital to put into service. Certainly, they've been a lot more conservative about deploying that capital. But if you are the winner in your space and you can demonstrate that to investors and and sell them on your story, sell them on your vision, the dollars will flow. The investments will come into good companies. Focusing on your story, Focusing on doing the research and and demonstrating that you've done the research to show that you are uniquely positioned to win in this space, I think that's going to have a great, great, great impact, probably even above uh, some of the legal tasks that we help with our clients with on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, thanks for sharing. And I couldn't agree more. It's, you know, all about kind of sharing your story and, you know, how you're going to make it successful from here to the investors and presenting that effectively. You know, with that being said and kind of building off of that, Let's just say the early stage companies have already got some capital and now they're looking to go through an M&A transaction. What steps can they take now to effectively position themselves for said transaction? Yeah. I had a colleague tell me recently that companies are bought, not sold. And what he meant by that is routinely when we see clients decide that now is the time to sell and they go out and they run a process. Maybe they even engage an investment banker to lead a process to try to drum up demand and create offers for a sale of a business. The outcomes 
on businesses trying to sell tend not to be as good as when essentially out of the blue or at a time when perhaps the founders aren't expecting it, they are approached by a strategic investor or maybe a financial investor and say, hey, what if we start having conversations about an acquisition rather than just an investment? You know, the opportunities come to you. Those are going to be some of the top opportunities as opposed to you going out and finding the opportunities. But in order for those opportunities to come to you, you've got to have a network of people that know what you're up to and that you're on their radar so that they can keep tabs on you and maybe be thinking about strategically how your business might fit into theirs. In, in terms of effectively positioning yourself for an M&A transaction, building a good business, having a clean business in the sense of, you know, your contracts are in order, your corporate house is in order, your intellectual property ownership and protection strategy is in order. All of those are things that are going to help you effectively get through that M&A transaction. But it's the networking and the conversations and the opportunities coming to you that's really going to drive that value. My honest-to-goodness advice in terms of the best way to position yourself to get, get to that successful exit someday is to build your network as broadly and quickly and effectively as you can so that people, people know about you and your business and what unique value you bring to the table. Yeah, thanks for sharing. And I actually leads into the next question about, you know, when should a founder start building its network? You know, I've seen a lot of successful entrepreneurs, especially in the RTP area, talk about this. And a lot of them were like, even before I even had the idea, like I was already building out my network to support that idea. So when do you think founders should start building this network? Is it six months before launch, at launch, or maybe shortly after? Yeah, the only right answer to that question is yesterday. Yesterday was the right time to start building your network, right? I, I think it's the top thing that founders can be doing to help themselves um, as they're looking for capital, as they're seeking that long-term vision of seeing that exit, having that solid network that you can rely on. It, it's hard to create demand for investment. It's hard to create demand uh, for an acquisition transaction. It's better if these opportunities are ones that are coming to you at the times when you need it. Or you can just pick up the phone and talk to that investor, for example, that you've been talking to for 18 months and selling them on your vision and say, hey, you know, we're starting to think about doing a round. Do you want to learn more? Right. You know, if that's the first time they're here for you, you know, the outcome may not be as good as it might be if you had been sowing the seeds for that conversation many, many months in advance. So, uh, yeah, I think the right answer to that question is, is, is yesterday. Uh, the time and legwork that you put into any of those networking events and, and building your network and building good quality relationships um, with potential investors and acquirers, that is time and effort well spent. I couldn't agree more. I mean, you never know who you're going to meet and when that relationship will end up being something of value in the future. So, yes, yesterday, I think, is the best answer. So since you are from the RTP area, I just want to kind of wrap this up with one loaded question for RTP, what are the benefits of launching a startup in this ecosystem, especially since it's always been kind of highly regarded as an area for startups? Part of that answer, Austin, is just what makes this area attractive to live and work in general. You know, relatively low cost of living, relatively easy place to live. You know, traffic is not terribly bad. Housing is somewhat easy to come by, although that's changing some, as we talked about earlier. Cost of living is low. Schools are good people are nice, the climate is nice, you know, part of it is just thinking about where you want to live alongside your work. You know, founders do work hard. Uh, they work a lot. 
Um, but you've got to have a life outside of work as well to help build and support that creativity. So just the fact that it's a nice place to live, I think, is one factor weighing to its benefit. You know, other factors, we've got three major research universities right here, uh, Duke University, NC State, and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. So we've got a lot of top talent, you know, ready, accessible to you just down the street for you to be able to recruit into your firm. I think that has always been seen as a major benefit of the research triangle and how it's got its name in the, in the first place. There's an ecosystem of existing startups here, and, and it's, it's continuing to grow and build on itself. Um, and we have infrastructure in place, like uh, an organization called NC Idea, which makes seed grants into uh, successful startups in very early stage startups in the space. And the Council for Entrepreneurial Development, or CED, is a support organization for startup companies throughout the Southeast. So, you know, we have some of that infrastructure in place to be able to support you as a startup founder if you're located here and if you're building your business here. But when I ask my colleagues this question and you know, kind of thinking about it internally, the thing that we really emphasize that makes us unique versus some of the other areas where there are high concentrations of startups, you know, it sounds cheesy, but there's a sense of collaboration here in the research triangle area and its startup ecosystem that I think is unrivaled versus other towns and cities across the United States. There is a collective sense of success and failure among startups here. Um, if one fails, we all kind of failed a little bit. If one succeeds, hey, it's great for the community. Founder exits and sees a big payout. More often than not, you'll see that founder plowing some of those earnings back into the ecosystem, either by becoming an angel investor himself or herself, or offering to you know, consult and advise with other startups in the area, uh, help them come along. I just think there's essentially collaboration here among the folks that are participating in the ecosystem that you, know, you, you may not see in, in other, perhaps more cutthroat areas of the country with their startup ecosystems. Yeah, I think that all really highlights just the overwhelming sense of collaboration that you do get when you go out and meet people. I mean, it doesn't matter what event you go to, you're going to find at least one person that's looking to just help those around him, especially startups. So thank you for sharing that perspective. Um, thank you, Adam, for joining us today on the Business Resilience Podcast. Um, please give our listeners the best way to contact you to continue this conversation. Sure. Yeah, of course. Uh, Austin, uh, you know, if anyone wants to contact our law firm, probably best to just go on our website, robinsonbradshaw.com. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, we're a full-service uh, business law firm that uh, is based in the Carolinas here. We've got our headquarters in Charlotte, but we've got two very rapidly growing offices in Chapel Hill and Raleigh. And that's where the majority of our startup work comes. So find one of us on our website. Our emails and our phone numbers are listed there. Uh, so feel free to give us a shout. And before we close out, just to kind of quickly recap everything for everyone um, that's tuning in and listening, you know, the best time to raise is when you need the capital. Stuff's not within your the founder's control. Just make sure you do your basic block and tackling before you go into these transactions. Um, and just remember, companies are bought, not sold. It's easier when they approach you, not the other way around. And just a shameless plug for Raleigh, you know, it's a good sense of collaboration in the area. So if you're looking to start a company, it's definitely a great community. Thanks for tuning in today. Um, please follow us on LinkedIn and a few more episodes of the podcast on ghjadvisors.com. Thank you.